Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 372 of the podcast. It is May 27th, 2020. My guest today is Karen Gaudette. She's the author of an excellent book called Steady Work, which was published by the Lean Enterprise Institute. In the interest of full disclosure, I am a former employee of LEI, and they did provide a review copy of the book. In today's episode, we discuss Karen's experience with Lean at Starbucks. It's a fascinating story that includes a transition from having the Seattle headquarters being the ones who figured out best practices to being more of a company where store managers and baristas were taught how to design playbooks and to continuously improve the way the work was done there locally in their store. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you want to find more information uh, about the book and where you can buy it, go to leanblog.org slash 372. Well, again, our guest today is Karen Godet. Karen, thanks for joining us. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, really happy to be talking with you and, and talking about your book. Um, but I was wondering if you could first introduce yourself um, to the listeners who maybe work backward and talk about your role at the Lean Enterprise Institute. Yes. I So my current role at LAI, I am a team leader uh, and I lead uh, operations and personnel. And um, I started with LEI just about almost five years ago now and uh, came into the organization leading uh, education, so public education, and have transitioned into management uh, of operations and personnel. And the path that got you introduced to Lean, you know, is I think what led to your book and a really interesting story. So now kind of, you know, backtracking how, how did you get exposed to lean? I guess the related side question is, did you ever imagine getting exposed to something like this in the course of your work and your career? Yes. Yeah, so no, <laughs> I did not. <laughs> um, I did not. And while at Starbucks, so I was at Starbucks just over about 13 years and was first introduced to lean back in 2008 uh, in the height of the economic crisis and the organization at that time had begun to work behind the scenes, uh, which I wasn't aware of at the time, obviously with John Shook and LEI. Um, but the way that I was introduced uh, was through uh, the improvement routines that were uh, first developed in regards to how we actually brewed coffee. And um, I was asked, just as many of my peers were, to go into the cafes and begin to look at and observe the work of brewing coffee uh, in relationship to the challenges we were having as an organization. And that, um, over time, led to the development of the playbook system, at which point in time I was um, introduced and asked to be one of the initial leaders of how to spread and implement that into and through, um, I guess, across all of the retail locations. Um, and that's where I became much more deeply involved in how to develop the system and share that. Um, across the organization. Yeah. So before talking about the, the the playbook and the broader approach, like if it's all right, just to get into the weeds for a minute, because I love coffee. I'm a frequent <laughs> Starbucks customer. I would even say I love Starbucks. Um, and I normally drink brewed coffee. 
So the, 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 the question gets into the weeds is like how much opportunity for improvement could there have been? Like, it seems like Starbucks would have had that completely perfected and everything would have been fine with brewing coffee, but it sounds like maybe not. Yeah. So the quality of the coffee uh, from the growers um, through the roasting process all the way out to the front counter um, is extraordinary. And the level of, um, you know, quality assurance that's applied from sampling the coffee to how it's processed is by far one of the best. And what would occur would be once the coffee reached, I guess, the back door of the cafe, right? It was in our hands of the field operators in which uh, we would then take that whole bean coffee. We were responsible for grinding it and brewing it and serving, serving it consistently to the customer um, as you experience it. And what would happen back at that time would be um, there was no, common approach to there was a way in which we brewed coffee for sure however that might be done differently um, from one location to the next location and or from one barista to the next barista Hmm. and when we would technically brew coffee you might come in and want a certain type of coffee and uh, we wouldn't have it so it would be um, it would go out of quality within 30 minutes of after being brewed and let's say it was, it has been 35 minutes. And so it was either not in quality, so it shouldn't have been served, or it was in the process of being brewed and you were requesting it. So we didn't have it. And then we would have to tell you, I'm sorry, Mark, we don't have that right now. If you don't mind waiting or brewing that for you, or we can offer you an espresso beverage in replacement of that, which isn't the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so it was through kind of all of those um, process points, if it were, of getting the coffee from the back door to the paying customer on the front counter, that there was a lot of variability and inconsistency in the quality of what was happening. Mm. That's where a lot of waste was occurring. Either we were grinding coffee that wasn't used and thrown out, we were brewing coffee that wasn't served and thrown out, Mm. or we didn't have the coffee that the customers were requesting. Um, so all of those things really made for an inconsistent mm-hmm. customer experience. And so if, I, if I'm offered an Americano as a replacement for a brewed coffee, there's probably a margin hit to Starbucks. You're offering that at the cost, the price of a brewed coffee. There's lots of challenges, right? Yeah. Uh, there's an in- inventory inconsistency that occurs uh, based on how it's either rung in and then what you actually deliver. Uh, there's a margin difference as well as just the customer's experience. You now believe that's your beverage, but it actually isn't. Yeah. So what was the, the, the case for change? Or I'm curious if you remember like the, the way lean was framed and, and pitched to you and, and other Starbucks leaders and associates, how much of it was about the financial uncertainty or, um, you know, the, the economic environment versus quality versus other factors? So the, clearly the financial impact to the organization at the time was significant um, back in 2008, as it was for so many. And um, recognizing the core of who we were as an organization um, and the promise that we were making at that point, and they continued to do uh, to the community and the people in which it serves. And so... Um, as much as we were serving coffee, it was really about the people in the community um, and our customers. And so 
we recognized without satisfied customers, we we, we wouldn't stand a chance um, in, you know, stabilizing the financial picture. Mm-hmm. And so clearly, you know, the financial impact was significant. We needed to, you know, recover the organization, but we weren't going to get there unless we could provide the customer's experience. So it's really started from the customer side of the counter and worked its way back up into the organization. Yeah. And what, what do you call about the, um, you know, I guess, you know, the reception, the level of buy-in, if you will, about, and, and, and was, was this even referred to as lean or was it really now maybe ask you to talk about, you know, the playbook? Um, I'm, I'm curious of like the, the, I'm always interested in the language that's being used and whether it resonates with people or not. It was introduced as lean. Uh, we did use that language. We used uh, A3, um, problem solving, all of the, I guess, common terminology uh, that's used. We did use that. Um, we did find over time, there's a tipping point that occurred um, and likely for others as well, that there's more people applying the thinking than not. And it's a time in which it gets fully embedded into the kind of the culture of the organization. So it becomes the way in which you operate versus something you're doing. And that's when uh, some of the kind of terms started to slip away and they became Mm -hmm. more Starbucks language than anything. And so then, so you talk about some of the evolution of the language, but then I'm, I'm curious if you can talk about, as you mentioned in the book, how lean was an evolution or a change from some of the old model where um, the headquarters, my, my perception of it was, as you were describing that, the headquarters in Seattle tended to figure things out or they would call them best practices and things were practices and methods and routines were pushed to the stores. But the, the lean approach was different in a number of ways, such as? Yeah, so... Uh, prior to really understanding uh, problem solving and recognizing that across the system, and clearly in our example, the largest organization, there's commonality in problems that exist. And so what would happen prior to applying lean thinking in practice is that if I was struggling with something in my locations, um, it was likely that others, my other peers of mine um, were s- struggling with something similar. And so if I happened to come up with a solution that worked in my location, so let's say it was local marketing or community involvement or even actually how I might stack whole bean in my locations to make it more prominent at the register, something like that, um, that would be taken up if it had proven results. And um, many others would then just start to implement that, or that would come from inside of Seattle. So, um, you know, program managers inside of Seattle would come up with a solution to something and then that would get spread out. And then what transitioned as we started to really understand problem solving was that, yes, those problems are similar, but the details inside those problems are very different. And without actually as a leader and as operators understanding those finer details of those problems, you really don't know if that practice is going to be as effective or get that result. And unfortunately, uh, what would happen is you might um, get one result on one end. So you might see an uplift in, let's say, uh, top line revenue in one way, but you might be eroding all of the profitability of it because you're putting so much labor into it or you really don't understand the nuances of the problem. So 
on one hand, it felt like it was helpful because you were taking someone else's best practice and applying it to your problem. And that on the surface of things might have felt better. Um, but longer term, you actually realized holistically, um, it didn't really actually solve the problem because you didn't fully understand the problem in the first place. Mm. And, and so, I mean, of course, um, you mentioned a three problem solving and, you know, uh, that, that connects dots to the idea of working or teaching people how working to or helping people better understand problems mm. before jumping into countermeasures. I was wondering if there any, any examples come to mind as you were starting to develop that habit with yourself and others. Yeah. So, um, one example I can share, uh, it was in the, actually in the Danbury Connecticut location and, the way um, the way that each Starbucks location is built and designed is ever so slightly different. They're not uh, completely cookie cutter in any way. Um, and that has a lot to do with uh, the flavor of the brand in lots of ways. Um, and particularly in New England, all the different business locations in which Starbucks show up, sometimes the, the physical four walls is just very different. And such the case uh, in this one location where the register where the registers are and the the cashier would ring up the customer in relationship to where the espresso bar was or the warming oven, let's just say, um, was not atypical. And so the warming oven was actually far down the other end of the counter, um, actually past where they actually washed dishes. It was just the way that the store was set up. And so, um, Typically, what would happen if you ordered a breakfast sandwich or something to be warmed at the front register, the warming oven would be right there for someone to put the piece of pastry or what have you into the oven and get it warmed. That wasn't the case in this location. And so they weren't able to actually follow um, kind of the standard practice of who would actually take that pastry and get it warmed. And when they did that, they weren't able to um, ensure sort of the time expected for the customer's experience. And so understanding kind of the thinking around problems and how to start to break those down and understand them differently, they were able to apply the thinking that was behind the system to actually recognize it in their location, how to do that, that they could meet the expectation of the customer, um, ensure a timing perspective for the customer, as well as um, kind of the productivity of doing that work from a labor perspective. So instead of the cashier or someone who's standing by the register to do that, it actually, they would feed the breakfast sandwiches and pastries through the espresso bar, almost like it was a beverage. So they mm -hmm. would write it on the bag and it would go into the espresso bar as if it was a beverage. Um, and so it was a way that they creatively used the standard to actually solve a local problem mm -hmm. that made them just ever so different than yeah. every other store on the block. Yeah. So when you're talking about standards, um, you know, I wanted to explore standardization and standard work and the interesting phrase you use in the book. I was wondering if you could explain and elaborate um, the idea that standardization sets us free. Yes. Uh, so standardization, and I, I never understood this uh, up until this period of time, uh, because as we were uh, learning the different work routines, so each component of work inside of the cafe, uh, there was a work routine that was developed around it. So eventually, over time, everything that was happening in the cafe was inside of a routine. Mm 
There was online work and offline work. There was a replenishment person that would take care of replenishing um, inventory items for the line to include, you know, washing the fingerprints off the front door. So, mm-hmm. so everything that all of the work that was included inside the cafe was on a routine. And as each one of those routines was being developed and we were beginning to use them, um, there was absolutely um, an initial kind of adoption of feeling as though this is, you know, hampering our creativity. Why, why is it not my way? You know, the morning shift versus the night shift, um, all of the, the traditional kind of urban legends about how work was actually getting done. And what, actually ended up happening was that, and and the Danbury example that I just shared is a good example of it, of how once all of those routines came together as the system of playbook, so playbook, the word, really just represents the system nature of all of the work routines working together. And so once all of that came together, it was uh, so freeing to be able to stabilize the operation because in in the cafes, at any moment of time, you know the volume could be super volatile um, and unpredicted. I mean, it is high high volume and high mix. You know, there's over you know close to what eight hundred thousand or six hundred thousand different ways you can make a latte, and mm-hmm. so it takes all of that variability and creates some level of stabilization, so that you then can start to innovate and problem solve. And I didn't realize or recognize that early on. It took some time for me to get towards the system level that I realized and my team realized, wow, this is, this is so freeing mm-hmm. because we, we had a common way of thinking. We had a common way of seeing things that as a leader, it could actually add value back into the system versus deter- detracting from it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was it, the... The results, the system, all of it started to just take off. It hit a tipping point when we we got that light bulb of, wow, this really creates enough stabilization for us to really exponentially grow. Yeah. Um, it was incredible. And, and you know, I, I think a lot of people, well, I know a lot of people I work with in, in healthcare um, share that concern that, that you had about standard work and creativity. And I think there's often a perception where pe- people jump to, an assumption, an assumed extreme. And I'll hear people say things like, well, so does standard work mean, you know, somehow we, everybody does everything exactly the same way. And they'll say, well, you know, patients are different. Circumstances are different. It's different between day and night shift. And, and I've always tried to teach, well, wait a minute, it might not always be practical or helpful to take it to that far of an extreme. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how you helped navigate some of that within um, within Starbucks, like what, what had to be precisely done a certain way for a certain reason versus things that, um, would lend itself more to leeway or Mm -hmm. uh, flexibility or creativity or however you might frame it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there were, um, kind of basic assumptions that were kind of incorporated or embedded into the work routines that, um, were like rules of play that needed to include certain things. Um, So whether that was the sequence of steps um, that were needed. Um, So as an example, with the espresso bar, um, there was an assumption or an expectation that you were able to sequence two beverages at a time. And in order to do that, 
you had to sequence the steps of the two beverages in a certain way in order to ensure that you could um, have beverages coming off at every 38 seconds. And so kind of those kind of ground rules um, uh, weren't up for being changed. Like mm-hmm. the, like those were standard. Yeah. Okay. Depending on where your physical layout was or other circumstances that existed inside your unique situation, other things could be changed. So where, where certain, um, uh, inventory was kept, where syrups were kept, how you stationed the bars, how you signaled for replenishment, um, the sequence of things that would happen inside that replenishment cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things enabled um, more creativity. And then as problems would come up, so if somebody, what we would call, would, would be on routine, which traditionally is you know leveraging standardized work, um, and problems would happen inside of that, then the routine would be improved. So standardization, you know, there's there's standards and work standards inside of the standardized work, but standardized work really is how we're all commonly doing it for right now. This is the best known way right now in which we're doing it. And as we come up with common and consistent problems and we, we solve them as a team versus I'm going to solve this problem right now because I'm working the bar and you're going to have to solve it differently when you get on the bar let's come up with a common well-known solution for it. And then we improve and um, improve the standardized work, right. Or the work routine so that we all have an opportunity to benefit from the improvement that's getting made and have an opportunity to have input into how it's improved, which enables the creativity. Um, Yeah. Well, and and what you described there, I mean, this happens in healthcare. I think of instead of baristas behind an espresso machine, it's people working in a hospital laboratory, day shift, night shift. And there's a difference between like repeated workarounds and a yes. team getting together to figure out what can't, what must be um, standardized for what reason so that people aren't constantly setting it up their way each time yes. they come in. Or, or like, I'm curious, like this is getting into the weeds, would a left-handed barista tend to want to flip their workstation compared to a right-handed barista. And does that matter? Uh, potentially, um, yeah. potentially I can't, I can't pick a specific example in regards to that uh, where it came up. Um, what, what we did hear a lot of was um, in uh, this may not be similar to other industries, um, but it's common for if I'm a barista in one location, I might also uh, do work in another location, right? So we, we they would share across locations and, um, and or shifts. So if I worked in the morning, I might sometimes work at night. And so because it's stabilized, the standardization kind of stabilized things, they actually, we'd have baristas that would work in stores that were fully implemented on the system and not want to go back to their other store. Mm-hmm. Or if they started working on the night shift or the day shift because they were a little bit more proficient in the standard the standardized work, they would want to stay with that team. So there's such an appreciation and respect for people when their their common and routine tasks are standardized to the degree in which it's respecting their thinking and enabling them mm-hmm. to not have to deal with the waste that that snarls you up with just trying to rework someone else's work all the time or what have you. That um, they actually appreciated the fact that there was standardization in place because mm-hmm. it they felt they saw that as a respectful thing. Yeah. Well, and part of it's how you go about it, working oh, with people on standardization and working with them to continually problem solve and improve. Right. 
Yes. Yeah. We were careful in our approach and, and we weren't right. always successful. I don't want to make it sound like it was easy by any stretch and or a given. Um, we certainly had our challenges, um, but we were careful in our approach to stand shoulder to shoulder with the baristas and others um, and learn alongside of them and recognize that many of these problems they had been dealing with and needed help with for some time, but we hadn't been seeing it. And um, we needed to listen to them and recognize um, that they had a lot of knowledge that we weren't leveraging. Um, yeah. And that, that's, I think that's an important part of it um, versus of, you know, forcing standardization on people's, people's work where they don't know where it's coming from. Yeah. So I want to explore a little bit more about the the playbook concept, because I think this has a lot of parallels to healthcare and other service settings where it's not scheduled manufacturing Hmm. or, you know, lean factory. It was, it certainly has a build sequence and a schedule for the day that you can plan to. And a playbook to me, you know, I, I think of sports where let's say in football, sometimes coaches will script the first handful of plays in a game. Yes. Beyond that, it all becomes very situational. Do you have the lead or are you behind or did somebody get injured? Um, A playbook to me implies like having like different reactions ready for different foreseeable situations. Is that what what do you think of that analogy? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great analogy. Uh, And that that is exactly what it was. So there was uh, common thinking that existed. Uh, so each routine had common thinking to it and work routines. And then they worked together in as a system during uh, peak and non-peak times. And there was certain decision logic that you could apply. So given uh, the amount of transactions and the demand on certain work, you would um, have a way to calculate and think about based on the demand on certain types of beverages, whether it's brewed coffee or espresso or pastry, how many people you actually needed to do that work. So what was the work requirement? And then from there, you could um, build in capacity. So you could choose to have additional capacity if you knew um, something was happening, you know, out in the community or you were expecting certain demand for certain reasons. Um, And as well as if orders needed to get done or offline other administrative work needed to get done. So you had a set of parameters that you could use to understand any given situation at any time and whether you needed um, more people on one side of the rest cafe versus the other. Um, it was, it was ingenious. It was fabulous. Um, the, the power that it enabled and gave uh, to the cafe managers was incredible. Uh, as well as as leaders coming in trying to be helpful to be able to coach others. Um, you could look at those set of parameters and ask a certain set of questions, much like Kata, and um, help to define the depth of the problem pretty quickly and how to coach others and develop others' problem-solving capability based on the thinking they had applied to that shift, yeah. which en- enabled us to really perform in the way that we needed to for the community when Newtown occurred. Yeah. And um, you, you tell the, the, you know, the complete version of the story in, in the book. Um, but since you mentioned Newtown um, and, and what that town is associated with in most people's minds, could you, could you give just kind of a kind of touch briefly on the story that's told in the book? 
Yeah. So the story that I share in the book um, is, is, is brief, but I try and touch on, on it from a perspective of um, what, what occurred in Newtown with the shooting. Uh, We, we have a cafe in Newtown and at the time uh, we're, we're seen as sort of the epicenter of the community. So um, the, the store on a, you know, typical day would be fairly mid volume, but as of that day uh, of the shootings and for the subsequent two weeks following that period of time, quadrupled in volume overnight, the world press um, camped Mm -hmm. out in the parking lot. Um, The the community that was right, we were right next to, we were located right next door to the church where um, was the center of the community. Um, And so the way in which we were able to uh, not only make decisions and problem solve what was happening in the time, but to help people be kind of emotionally available for the community Mm -hmm. at that Mm -hmm. period of time was critical. And all of the work we had done up into that period of time with um, playbook and the work routines and problem solving, we had built a level of capability that enabled us to be pretty effective during that period of time. We also had um, had lost one of our baristas um, in the shooting as well, uh, Lauren oh, Rousseau. Gosh. And um, so we we ended up having we we closed uh, one of the locations, we closed the Danbury store, which is right up the street from there. Um, and so we had we were we we personally were dealing with quite a bit, mm-hmm. as well as trying to be present for the community and manage through the volatility of what was happening inside the business from a people perspective, mm-hmm. a product perspective. And um, I'm just so grateful to have been in, been practiced at that period of time with a system that we had at our hands um, to be able to manage through because it, it completely enabled us to, to do what we needed to do for the community at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it goes to show, I mean, even maybe, you know, in normal times that Starbucks is not a business that is solely focused on efficiency and customers per hour, that there's an experience and there's, it's more, you know, there's, there's more to it. And, you know, I think this is why I think it's interesting to think about parallels to healthcare where people might say, you know, replace the words, but well, you know, don't, don't, don't try turning the hospital into a factory. And my response is, well, well, of course not. We want the hospital to be the best hospital it can be. And a hospital also has elements of, of, of caring and um, customer service that are not, where, where, where efficiency is not the only thing that matters. And lean is adaptable to what the organization and its people need. Yes. And my goodness, uh, right now is just such a great example of please, please standardize some of the work so that the nurses and the doctors can be front and center and present for my family member who's sick, who I need you to show great care with. Right. Yeah. So please, please standardize certain things so that you can use your thinking and your brilliance to taking care of my family member. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, thinking back to um, Starbucks, a couple other things I wanted to ask you before we go. Um, uh, you, you wrote in the book about the situation where standardization um, of, of process would have benefits for the store and for most customers, but you had a handful of regulars who were then not happy with, mm-hmm. with the change of, of 
as you told the, the story I'm referring to. Um, so, uh, it, you know, the regular customer comes in and the, the, the baristas know what they want and they start making their drink, even if it's a little bit out of sequence. I guess maybe some people got, some customers get accustomed to that. How did you navigate those waters? Yeah, that was incredible learning. Uh, so in our first actual location, we learned that really quickly um, that we needed to customers from, from Starbucks, it's like their living room. Like they'll move the chairs around, et cetera. And we just, we totally underestimated the impact it was going to have on them. Um, and thankfully they were very vocal with us. Um, and we found mm. out immediately what we had done wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. But to that exact example where uh, if you're a regular customer and I would recognize you coming in, I could start making your beverage. You could count on the fact that I would make your beverage probably ahead of the sequence of what was actually coming in from other customers. And as great as that was for you, Mark, um, it was challenging for other customers because um, it created great inconsistency. You might get your beverage before you could even pay for it and other customers were waiting longer. And so in order to create a consistent pace, um, that's where the sequencing came in. So we recognized that as we observed beverages and we would do that with baristas and managers as well so that they could um, measure and spaghetti map and see actually the inconsistency of the pace of beverages coming out. Uh, that it was important to teach them how to sequence so that everyone could get their beverage like within 38 seconds. And um, so it it took time, first of all, to gain the trust of customers so they would recognize the fact that it could happen in a pace. But in those early days, we we spent time on the front side of the, cu- the counter um, basically working change management with our customer base, mm. helping them understand we were making some changes and how we're operating. We appreciate your feedback. Please give it to us. Let us know how it's going. So we, we would educate the customers on what was actually happening so that they, they knew what to expect. We weren't always successful. Yeah. Um, but more often than not, once they could build the trust that yes, mm-hmm. their beverage was still going to come out pretty quickly and they actually would still have an engaging experience with the barista so the barista could talk with them and recognize them and make them feel important. It worked out. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I know you've got to, um, we've got to wrap up for the sake of time here, but um, I really do like the book a lot. Uh, it's you. called Steady Work. And, you know, there, there's a lot of interesting stories. And as I'm reading it, it's interesting to learn about Starbucks and then to think about the parallels to, um, your own work environment, wherever that might be. So I, I, I think it's important to not frame this as a book about how to run a lean coffee shop. Uh, yes. <laughs> there's much more <laughs> to it than that. So thank you for that, Karen. Um, you know, the back of the book here, nine lessons to share, um, I think are very transferable and um, great examples. So um, Karen, what, what do you recommend for um, the best places for people to find the book and, and buy it and read it? Uh, so first and foremost, I'd invite them to uh, lean.org. Uh, to find the book, you can also find it on Amazon. Uh, the audiobook just came out as well, uh, oh, nice. and it's available in Kindle. So, did you read? Did you read it yourself? I didn't. You didn't? Okay. I didn't. Yeah. I I was tempted to do it, but I didn't. 
So we'll get, well, maybe we, you, you and I, well, I, I almost delved into author talk. We can talk about that some other um, time. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to have that conversation. Okay. So um, we'll, 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 we'll chat again, I, I, I hope, and, and maybe we can do a follow-up conversation and talk about love more that. elements of the playbook and your lessons learned, Karen. I would love that. Thank you, Mark. Well, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.